Well, as kids of various ages are dismissed, I invite you actually just to stand with me as we read Scripture together, just to stretch our legs a little bit, if you're able to. I want to read all of 1 Corinthians 5 as we begin. 1 Corinthians 5, which you may turn to, says, It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. you Maybe seated. I know of a certain church that existed long ago. In some ways, it still exists. It was bustling with excitement and rapidly growing, and people were added to the church consistently. They had well-respected leadership that obviously knew what it meant to walk with Jesus, their Lord. The people loved one another. And in this church, regularly, people would come and give large amounts of offerings and donations to help one another to serve those who are in need amongst them. And from time to time, they would take an offering providing for needs. One day, a certain couple came before the church and made uh, such a large offering. And in doing so, they, they proudly proclaimed, we have this property and we sold all of it, and we're giving all of it to the church to minister to others. The problem with that is that they didn't give all of it to the church. In fact, some of it they kept aside for themselves. And that in and of itself wasn't the problem, the keeping of the money to themselves. It was their property. They sold it. They could do what they wanted with it. The problem was in their boasting and proclaiming that they gave everything to the church when, in fact, they had withheld some for themselves. It was a boast of arrogance. They wanted to be seen before the church as more generous than they really were. 
It was a lie driven by their egos. They wanted to seem more sacrificial than they were in reality. And the pastor of the church, enabled by the Holy Spirit, actually was able to detect the lie and said to them, you've not only lied to men, but to the Holy Spirit. And as he said this, the couple dropped dead and their bodies were carried out. Fear fell upon the whole church. Most of you, I think, know that story. It sounds familiar, does it not? It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira told in Acts chapter 5. It is a recording of God's discipline and judgment upon his church in the midst of the excitement of the new church growing and Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ in the beginnings of the New Testament church when God was doing something new in the world through Jesus Christ. It was a reminder that God still cares about holiness in his church and will discipline it. It was a lesson that was true then and is true now that God cares about the holiness of his people, of his community, of his temple. And that the church must be a place of integrity that witnesses to that holiness. It's the point Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 5, that this church must be a holy church. There was a pride and a proudness in, first, in Corinth that was similar to Ananias and Sapphira. A pride over who they were and how wonderful they were as a church. And Paul wants to deal with that and show them how they should deal with egregious sin in their church and be rebuked and corrected so that they may maintain holiness. So Paul tells them how and why egregious sin should be addressed in Christ's church. And in fact, that's the question that I want us to unpack and answer as we work through 1 Corinthians 5 this morning. We'll do so quickly. We're going to not answer every question that we might have. Many things will be left unanswered for us. We couldn't possibly tackle all the questions that we have about this passage in the time we have. But we're going to get started in wrapping our heads around this passage and what Paul is saying. And we'll do so by answering this question. How and why should egregious sin be addressed in Christ's church? How and why should egregious sin be addressed in the church of Jesus Christ? It's immediately obvious that this is a difficult text for us. It's not one that you would choose on your own. This is why going through a whole book is warranted in preaching because you're going to come across passages you might not want to preach otherwise. But we want to deal with the whole counsel of Scripture, so we come before 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to need grace, courage, humility, love and wisdom to not only understand this, but to apply it in our own church. We need Jesus to help us. We trust that we have him in his spirit, and we will as we answer this question, how and why should egregious sin be addressed in Christ's church? And the answer, uh, the word that you're going to hear over and over again that will guide us is excommunication. It's a word that means removal from the community. is what Paul advocates here. Let's unpack that. First in verses 1 through 5, we see the somber call for excommunication. The somber call for excommunication. It's not a joyous, happy passage. It's a somber passage. And Paul calls the church to do something quickly, courageously, authoritatively, and humbly. A somber call for excommunication. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. 
for a man has his father's wife. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says he's heard a report about the church in Corinth, and he's surprised. It is actually reported. There's a hint of incredulity in there. I can't believe that I'm hearing what I'm hearing. It's actually reported there's sexual immorality in the church. And that word for sexual immorality, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? It's a word just simply porneia. That's the Greek term, porneia, and it means sexual immorality. It is defined by context. So the context will determine what kind of porneia, what kind of sexual immorality we're talking about here. It's kind of a catch-all term for any type of sexual activity that is not uh, affirmed by God or is outlawed in his law, in his word. So it's a general word for sexual immorality determined by context. What does the context say this kind of porneia was? Well, it was a kind that not even the pagans allowed. The Greco-Roman culture was not necessarily known for its chastity, right? We wouldn't look back at history and say those puritanical Greco-Romans. We wouldn't say that. They allowed all sorts of immorality, but even they looked at this and said, this is kind of outside the lines. And in particular, this sin was a man sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. We don't know much more than that about the context, but that's the basics of it. He was sleeping with his father's wife. That was forbidden in several instances in the Old Testament. And again, even the culture said this is outside the boundaries of decency. It was the kind of sin that was decried everywhere except apparently in Corinth, in the church. They were proud. Paul's already accused them of pride several places. And here he's saying, how could you be proud when this is going on? How are you arrogant while this is happening within your church? It might be that Paul is saying, it's not even so much that you're proud despite this sin, but you're proud because of it. It may be that the church thought itself as so free from the restrictions of the law, we have been set free in Christ. We are a Christian community, and we've moved beyond the old-fashioned morals of the Old Testament and those restrictions that are heavy-handed. We are an open and affirming and welcoming community. And this kind of sexual morality, we are, we have so much pride. We allow it because we're that gracious and we're that loving. And Paul says... You should be mourning. This isn't a case for pride. It's a case for mourning. And and notice what is implied in that. That there should be a communal response to an individual action. You as a church do not have the right to say, well, that's just what one person is doing. Well, that's just them. 
know what the individual does in the context of the community is important for the whole church. And you as a church should have a collective response to this. You are your brother's keeper. And your response should be mourning and weeping and humility, not arrogance. So what should they do about it? Paul says, remove the man who has done this. That is what you should do. This has crossed such a line that the person should be removed from your community. And Paul says this with a certain authority. He emphasizes the seriousness of this call to remove the person, saying, even though I'm absent from you physically, my spirit is with you, and in my presence, and with all the apostolic authority that I have, I've already pronounced judgment on this, this person should be removed. So Paul was leaning into his apostolic authority, but beyond that, he's leaning into the power and authority of Jesus Christ in this removal, saying, Jesus, the Lord is with you as you do this. How can Paul be sure that God is behind them, that the Lord Jesus Christ is with them in the removal of somebody from their congregation? How does Paul know that? Well, he studied the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 18 is a passage that deals, but you can turn there if you want. It might be helpful to look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, or I will read them for you. There Jesus gives his teaching on how people in the church should be corrected and maybe even eventually removed from the congregation. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you notice Jesus teaches there, don't air their dirty laundry in front of everybody. Respect the person, their privacy, their integrity. Go and have an individual conversation. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was Old Testament law. You need two or three witnesses to establish a charge and convict. So he says, take a few people with you if they don't listen to you. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of people, the congregation. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, i.e., they are no longer part of you. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is Jesus' teaching on how to correct sin, and if sin persists, how to address it as a community, as a church. The church assembled is to make a decision, and when they do, they have the authority of heaven behind them. They have the authority of Jesus Christ with them. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. That is not, as is commonly used, a passage for, to comfort you in your prayer meetings, say God is with us if a couple of us are gathered. The purpose of that passage is to say, just like in the Old Testament, when you have two or three witnesses gathered, you can charge and convict. This is a, a promise for church discipline. That when the whole church is gathered together and decides something, that God is with them, that Jesus Christ is with them in that disciplinary action, in that removal. It's a promise of Jesus' authority for the gathered community. And notice, it's a gathered community. It's not just one person. So this action isn't just taken by a pastor in the counseling office. 
No one individual has the authority to remove somebody else from the church. It has to be a church thing. It's an action taken by the community. Which brings up all sorts of questions as to who is the church? What does it mean to gather as a church? When do you do this? How do you do this? Do you do this on a Sunday morning when visitors are present who might not be part of your church? How do you know who's part of your church? Is it just somebody who's been around for a while and you just force them to be part of your church? Or do you have to have some type of process by which they affirm they're a part of the church? This is one of the reasons why I think church membership is essential. Some way of marking out who is part of the church and who isn't. Otherwise, how do you do something like this? And scripture says we must. How do you determine who is part of this church that's gathered that removes the person by the power and authority of Jesus Christ? And Paul says that when you are assembled under that power, deliver this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is a strong phrase. Paul has an understanding, the scripture has an understanding that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Jesus Christ the kingdom of light, if you will, the kingdom of God's people who are chosen and called out of darkness, and then there is the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness over which Satan rules. So in John's gospel, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world, and Paul in Ephesians calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. He's affirming there are are two kingdoms that, that overlap in many ways, and the question is which kingdom are you a part of? If you've been called out and saved in Jesus Christ, you're part of that kingdom of light. If not, you're part of the kingdom of this world. And what Paul is saying is when you should remove this person, and you should, you are putting them into the kingdom of darkness. You are removing them, so to speak, from the kingdom of Jesus Christ, saying you are in the kingdom that Satan rules, and you give them over to that kingdom under Satan's rule for the destruction of the flesh. What does Paul mean by flesh? That word is used in various ways throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it means physical body. Very often it means that sinful part of us, our flesh that is fallen, that is opposed to, opposite from the redeemed part of us. And Paul is saying, remove that person, put them under the watch of Satan, Let them experience that torment, which may include physical suffering, but so that they may have their flesh destroyed. That is, that spiritual part of them that is in rebellion against God, that sinful, arrogant, boasting part that still clings to every one of us. Paul's goal here is the destruction of that sin. His goal and the purpose is redemptive. Not punitive. Not there just to beat somebody up. But to deprive somebody 
of all the wonderful benefits of life as part of the body of Christ, to remove them from that so that their sin might be destroyed. I think we don't realize as part of the church how much we are benefited by being part of the church and how much work goes on that is sanctifying, that keeps us going, that we don't even realize is happening, that if it were removed, we would suffer. And Paul is saying you should remove that. Why? So that your flesh might be destroyed, so that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal is salvation. And you say, that is really harsh. And how could we do that? Isn't that mean and cruel? And so we, we don't ask the same question to the doctor who administers chemotherapy. That is a cruel medicine. It's a harsh medicine. But we don't question it. Why? Because we recognize the disease is deadly. And the cruelty is worth it. And if we look at this and say, that's too harsh, that's too cruel, it might be because we don't actually think sin is deadly or serious. We think sin is something we can play around with, and egregious sin is something that God doesn't really care about. But if we believe that sin is deadly and dangerous and has to be treated, we'll recognize that the harsh medicine is worth it. And you might say, well, I've never seen this done. I've never seen this done well. And that's maybe one of the reasons why churches don't do this. Maybe they've had bad experiences if you've heard bad stories about people being removed. And that's something that you really have to take into account. It requires prayer, wisdom. It's why it's not a decision of one person, but a decision of the whole church. Great care and prayer must be taken in doing anything like this. But just because it can go badly is not a reason not to do it. People die in car crashes every day, and yet we're all planning on driving home. Why? So we recognize that despite the risk, we must drive home. Just because something might go wrong doesn't mean we don't do it. Rather, we say we have to do it, but we're going to take care to do it well and deliberately and carefully, which is how I hope you all drive. This is not an easy thing. It's a somber call. The purpose of which, first, is for the salvation of the sinner, and second, also for the whole church as well. That's Paul's point in verses 6 through 8. Here we see the holy purpose of excommunication. Paul calls for removal, and then he gives a holy purpose, holy purpose of excommunication. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Paul says, your pride, your boasting over this is not good. It's not a good thing. Don't congratulate yourself. And he asks the question, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he employs an illustration of yeast, causing the whole bread to rise. Just a little bit of it, just a tiny bit, can infect and affect the whole group. The analogy is clear. Just takes a little bit to change the whole group. What is tolerated in one spot will grow, or elsewhere Paul talks about spreading like gangrene. Like a virus, it might infect your whole community. A teacher knows this. You who have taught in a classroom know how this can work. As a teacher, you love all your students. You want all your students to do well. But every once in a while, you might come across one student who, by their actions, affects the whole group. And it can get, in extreme cases, not in all cases, but extreme cases where the actions of the one student become so disrupting and damaging to the whole group that it would actually be unloving to the group to allow that student to stay in the classroom. As much as you try, as much as you love, and you want them to stay, you want them to grow, you want them to to fit in, if they are picking up chairs and throwing them and biting other kids and punching the teacher, like at some point it is unloving to the rest of the group to keep that student in the classroom. And it's heartbreaking, but you have to say, this can't work. We have to remove this one person because I no longer can grow and develop the rest of the class. It's unloving to them. And it's actually unloving to the student to allow this to continue, so something has to be done. So you understand that as a teacher, you understand that anybody who leads a community knows that if one person gets out of line so much that it's affecting the rest of the group, that something has to be done. So Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Why does Paul use this analogy in particular? Is it because he likes baking? No. It's because Paul's thinking back to the Passover. He's got the Passover in his mind, in his frame of reference. Remember, we went over this as we went through Exodus. The Passover was the celebration of how God had redeemed Israel from captivity in Egypt, how he had saved Israel from his judgment. As the angel of death went throughout Egypt, killing the firstborn son, In God's judgment of Egypt, the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice a lamb, to put lamb's blood on the doorposts. This was a way of marking them out as God's people, and by the blood of the lamb, they were sanctified, they were set apart, marked out as God's holy people. That's the Passover. And you may remember some little detail about the Passover, that in the Passover... There was a Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover actually started the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you may recall that in that Feast of Unleavened Bread, all the leaven was supposed to be removed from the house. Not only were they not to eat leavened bread, they were to get rid of all leavening agents from their homes. They were to remove the leaven. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. That's Exodus 12:19. Paul has that in his mind, and he's using that analogy. He says, let there be no leaven found in you. The leaven must be removed, the leaven that infects the whole lump. Why? Because you are a new lump in Christ. Christ, who is your Passover lamb, who was sacrificed in your place, that his blood was placed on the wood so that you might be a new kind of bread, a new community. And because you are that, remove the leaven from you. Do you see what Paul's doing? This is what Paul does with all of his moral teaching throughout Scripture. All the moral teaching of anybody throughout Scripture is based on this. It is God's grace has been worked in you 
And because of that, now follow him and do what is right and holy. And the order there is really important. So when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel, he first says, I am the Lord who redeemed you and saved you. Now follow. It is what theologians call redemptive indicatives and moral imperatives. The moral imperatives, the commands, are based on redemptive indicatives, the truths of the gospel. So Paul says, here's the truth of the gospel. You are a new lump in Jesus Christ. God has made you clean and holy and pure. That's the redemptive indicative. Here's the truth. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. Now, because of that, the moral imperative removed 11 from you. What Paul is saying is, you're holy, so act like it. And this is a wonderful truth for people trying to grow in Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. When you grow in holiness, individually or as a church, when you're growing in sanctification, you are not trying to grow into something which you will never be. When you are growing up and growing in holiness and following the Lord, you are growing into what you already have been made. And that's a huge difference. When you're growing in sanctification, you're trying to deal with sin in your own life. You're not trying to do something that's impossible. I'll never be able to put this away because I could never be holy. So much of our Christian teaching is giving us laws and saying, just achieve to this. And we wonder why we're discouraged. We wonder why it never happens because we're trying to achieve something we could never do on our own. I'll never be that holy. How can I do that? But the teaching of the New Testament is you already are holy. So you're not growing into something that's impossible. You're actually just doing what is inevitable. You're not trying to reach some far out distant goal that you'll never get. You're actually going back to the starting line. This is who God has made you in Jesus Christ. You are a holy people a new lump. He's already done the work making you that. Now, live in it. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. God cares about the holiness of the church. And he cares so much, he sent his son to die for the church, to make her holy. So Paul says, celebrate the festival. He's not calling us to repeat Passover sacrifices. He says, celebrate the festival, not with malice and evil, but with sincerity and truth. Celebrate what God has done in Christ by living moral lives, holy before him, walking in sincerity and truth. That's the holy purpose of excommunication. Because we have been washed clean by Christ himself, we have an obligation to walk in that and not be like leavened bread. Lastly, Paul speaks to the intentional boundaries in excommunication. The intentional boundaries in excommunication. Apparently there may have been some confusion as to how people were to live this out. So Paul gives boundaries. Our time is short. I'm going to ask uh, for you to hang with me for a few minutes here. It might go a little bit long, but it's important that we talk over this. And I don't want to cut it too short. So Paul lays out intentional boundaries in excommunication. Verse 9. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Apparently, Paul had already written them a letter. He wrote to them previously, giving them this command, it seems, and they didn't understand how to apply it. And they got confused. So Paul said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. So they said, all right, we're not going to associate with anybody. Like, time for us to go live in a monastery, remove ourselves from the world, so we don't want to be stained by sin around us. And Paul says, no, you, you missed it. That's not what I was saying. He clarifies. He's not calling for the church to live a monastic life separated from the world. He says, how can you go out of the world? How can you bring the gospel to the world if you're separated from it? That's not what Paul is calling for. He's saying... Don't associate with sexually immoral people. I'm not talking about the people of the world. Otherwise, you'd have to just leave. That's not an option. In fact, if we're going to follow Christ, we do just the opposite. We go into, right? He incarnated. No, Paul's making a distinction. He's setting proper boundaries. He says, don't associate with, which means to mix indiscriminately with, don't associate with the immoral person who claims to be a brother. Someone who says, I'm a Christian, and then acts otherwise. I won't go into it, but I would encourage you to read Matthew 16, 19, which talks about the keys of the kingdom. That the church has actual authority to pronounce who is a part of them and who isn't. Somebody may claim, I'm a Christian, but it's the church that stamps the passport. And the church determines whether that is actually true or not. We don't like that truth because we're individualistic and probably arrogant. We don't want anybody else determining anything for us. But it is the community of the church that determines whether or not what you say is true. I'm a Christian. Well, the church determines. So if somebody says, I'm a Christian, acts totally contrary, the church has the right and responsibility to say, actually not. And Paul says, you are to remove that person from your midst. And notice, he's not just talking about sexual morality. He says, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, it means somebody who abuses with their mouth, a drunkard or swindler. So this isn't just about sexual morality. Paul's giving a principle and conduct for what to do in cases of all sorts of egregious sin. There are certain moral essentials or non-essentials. And somebody who crosses the line, they're to be removed. Now, this brings up all sorts of questions. Particularly, like, what crosses the line? What kind of sin is so egregious that a person should be removed, that the church is not to associate with such a person? How do we determine that? Because Paul will say elsewhere, Colossians 3.13, that we should forgive and bear with one another. And I think that's what we do 99% of the time. Somebody messes up and they sin, you say, well, yeah, get over it. That's church life. We're not perfect. 99% of the time, that's what we're doing. We're forgiving with one another, we're bearing with one another, we're looking over each other's imperfections, but there are those cases where the person 
continues to persist in sin, and something has to be done. So there's a few words or descriptors that I kind of use to think through. This is how you know it has crossed a line, a general description of somebody who ought to be removed because of their sin. First, if someone's unrepentant, like that's what Matthew 18 is all about. Persons approached over and over and over again, and they refuse to repent. You do not discipline somebody for repentance or for repentant sin. Somebody who's repenting, somebody who's turning, that's somebody who the Spirit is working in, and they're going in the right direction. You don't discipline or remove somebody who's repentant. But if they're unrepentant, that would be a characteristic of somebody who ought to be removed. Second, if that person's sin is public and obvious and blatant, like that's what it was here in 1 Corinthians 5. The whole church knew about it. They were, in fact, proud about it. If the person's sin is, is infamous and it's starting to have an effect on the whole people, it's public and it's obvious. Third, I would say if it's divisive or disruptive, it's impacting other people causing other people to stumble, creating disruption in the church. And fourth, kind of similar to unrepentant, if it's persistent, it's ongoing, it just keeps happening, such that you can no longer believe the person has the Holy Spirit or, or they're not acting like a Christian at all. So if the sin kind of fits those categories, and you say, well, that's a little bit loose, and I say, yeah, wisdom is required. Paul is giving us here a principle to walk out. We should walk out with wisdom and care and prayer. And he doesn't give us a full list of all things that might meet this standard. He's asking the church to recognize egregious sin when we see it. And then when we see it, to remove the person and not even eat with such a one, which is saying you should not share the communion table with them. That's the primary thing in view you should not have fellowship with that person. And the communion table is the table of fellowship. Well, Paul's saying you shouldn't even eat with them. They should not be invited to your assembly, your gathering of sharing the Lord's Supper together. So Paul has that in view because the communion table is what shows who we are as one body in Christ, one loaf, as Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians. And the communion table shows who we are This is part of the body. So that person should not eat with you because they should be removed from the body. And I think Paul has in mind even something even further beyond just table fellowship and communion. He's telling the church, don't do anything with that person that would indicate to them or anybody else that they're a part of you. Small groups, church functions, activities, We're all going out as a church, we're going to do this. And the person says, can I tag along? You say, no. They're being deprived of the graces and the benefits of the body of Christ. Paul's saying, don't even eat with such a one. What he means is don't have fellowship with them. Again, wisdom is required to figure out how to work this out in what context and what ways. Should they be allowed to attend on Sunday and hear the gospel proclaimed? What about a family member? Should the whole family shun them? That is a historic debate in the Mennonite and the Anabaptist church. Should the whole family just reject them personally? Or is this just a church thing? By and large, the church has said this is a church thing. So family members, you live with them as family, you love them as family, but when the church is represented and talked about and acting, 
They were removed from the fellowship of the church. How you apply this requires wisdom and more time than we have time to get into today. And at the end of it, you might still be saying this sounds so judgmental. And the answer is it is. And that's the point. Paul says, we are to judge those inside the church. Didn't Paul just say, I don't judge anyone? Last week, chapter 4, yep. He was talking about assessing somebody's faithfulness in ministry and that kind of thing. He says, don't judge. The Lord will work it out in the end. But here, in the context of sin in the church, just like Jesus, who calls us to judge one another first by taking the plank out of our own eye, but then to judge, Paul says, you must judge within the church. It is not your job to judge those outside the church. This is where the Westboro Baptist gets it wrong, right? It is not, Paul's very clear to say, not the church's responsibility, it's not in the church's job description to judge those outside. What have I to do with outsiders? God will judge them. That is God's work, that's on his job description, that's on his plate, it's not ours. So we as a church are not called to go waving signs that say you're all going to hell. That is not our job. In fact, the Westboro Baptist Church is a cult and against scripture in this. Our job description is not to condemn the world. God will take care of judgment in the end. Our job is to go and offer the gospel of Jesus Christ and say there's salvation for all who come. And then as they come in, as they are part of us, they say, now we have a responsibility to maintain holiness and purity within the church, so we judge within. We have a responsibility to maintain our holy witness as a church. And so often, the church gets this wrong. We judge everybody outside, condemn everybody outside, fight with everybody outside on every moral issue, expecting for some reason the kingdom of darkness to act like the kingdom of light because we're confused in our categories. We don't understand that there's a real Satan who actually has some rule over this world, so we get mad at the world for not acting like Jesus, and then people become part of the church and we say, "Ah, whatever you do is fine, there's grace and forgiveness. And we wonder why we have no evangelistic effectiveness or witness in the world. When all they hear from us is, we hate you, and we're going to excuse anything anybody does here. This is about our witness in the world, our faithfulness to God, our redemption of each other. God's redemption of us that we help encourage and maintain. Never, ever do I want a church full of people who are looking for sins to point out in one another. That's a miserable, graceless church. We don't want that. Neither do we want a church that will never, ever confront you for obvious sin. We need that. We need each other to help us walk the path of holiness. There are times, and they ought to be rare. This should not be happening every Sunday. But there may be times where we have to do what Paul says, where he says, purge the evil person from among you. He's quoting several verses in Deuteronomy there, where the death penalty was called for because Israel is a nation. Here we are a church. We act differently. We remove
How do we do that? We remove the person guilty of egregious sin, closing off our fellowship with that person, doing so with grace and courage and love, and handing them over to the kingdom of darkness. Why? Why would you do something so extreme? So that the sinful flesh of that person might be destroyed. That their soul might be saved. So that their sin might not spread in the church, so that the church might continue to have a faithful witness to God. And we do it all because Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb who has made us a new people. And we walk in that. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you humbly and we're talking about something incredibly difficult and challenging and fraught with potential for error, potential for arrogance, for undue harshness. Lord, we ask for much grace and much kindness and much patience as we think through what does this look like? And Lord, my prayer, I pray that we never ever have to do it. that we would never have to remove somebody, Lord. But if that day came, that we would do so trusting what your scripture clearly says about it, walking in humility, learning to fear you because you are a holy God and a consuming fire. We are dealing with eternal things. So Lord, give us humility, wisdom, Give us holiness, and Lord, help us to walk in the holiness you have already given us in Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Amen.